So here we are, right? True North Insight, Montreal, August 19th, 20th? 20th. 20th. There we are in the 20th. Okay, 2010. Okay. So why don't we do a practice? Why don't we start out with a little bit of a practice? So let me frame it if I could. So I'm a psychologist in my background. I'm a clinician, not an academic. I really appreciate what scientists do, what academics do. But, you know, I'm a, I'm a methods guy is sort of how I think of myself. A guy kind of on the front lines, in the trenches with real people, in real life, like, okay, how do we do this? How do we make, you know, how do we be happier? How do we treat each other better? How do we actually do it? As a psychologist and uh, both someone who works with adults and also with kids, you, you, you realize that there is this idea uh, that's been respected in many fields of psychology that it's important to have resources inside. All right? How do we get those resources though? I went to three different graduate schools and nobody really explained how do we get those resources inside? You know, how do we actually do it? So in the last, I'd say, 20 years, I've given a lot of thought to how do we get those resources inside and have focused a lot on using positive experiences uh, as a way to build resources by very consciously, very uh, uh, repeatedly, and very specifically going after the kind of positive experiences that we really, really need to take in. So that's my focus here. And this is a great example of using the mind to change the brain for the better. It's actually my favorite personal growth method because it feels good, it's simple, no one needs to know you're doing it, and it has a good neurological understanding behind it. So I'll take you through it a couple of times right now, uh, and then I'll unpack it, and then we'll do it a little more formally, see how that is for you, and then I'll um, use the discussion around that as a way to make some more points. Okay? So you're willing to do something experiential? You, now, experiential stuff, uh, there's more value in the deep end of the pool, but make sure you can swim back on your own. Okay? Because this is not a therapy session. This is not group therapy. There's one of me, there's a lot of you, you know, so take good care of yourself. So anything I say that doesn't work for you, don't do it. All right? Change it. Feel very free to adapt what I say. I may, I may suggest at some point to pay attention to your body in some ways. For some people, that's alarming, especially if they've had painful or even traumatic experiences. Feel very free to change my suggestions there. Take good care of yourself. Okay? So let's try this a couple of times. So I'm going to do this informally, then I'll do it a little more formally with you. Um, if you like, think of something that makes you feel a little happy. It could be something you're grateful for, some good fact. It's got to be a fact. You have to know it's true. So bring to mind some positive fact, maybe something nice in the world these days, or your world, or maybe an accomplishment, or someone treated you well recently. It's a good fact. And then let yourself feel it. Let it move from a concept to an experience that has an emotional and often a sensory component to it. And then as you do this, really let yourself feel as good as possible. Notice any resistance to feeling good. And then see if you can go back to letting yourself feel as good as you can based on this good fact. And all the while, sense and intend 
that this good experience is sinking into you, becoming a part of you, that you can take with you wherever you go. Okay, and kind of let that go. Although it's, it's still fine to feel good. It's really okay. It's good to feel good. Let's try it again. And as we do these three little steps, also be aware of what it's like to do them. Notice, for example, if you draw a blank and you can't think of any good facts. That's interesting. Or if you can think of a good fact, but it's hard to feel anything in response to it. That's interesting, too. Also notice if it's hard to sustain the experience that's mildly positive for more than a second or two or a few seconds in a row. That's feedback. right? Or notice if other voices start yammering in your mind, like, this is stupid, or this is selfish, or this is vain, or this is somehow a sin to feel good. Okay, that's more there, too. So let's try it again. Bring to mind something else that's factually good actually positive. Could be a, and typically is, a, a mild fact, a small good fact. And then let yourself have a response to that good fact, a positive emotion. Probably a mild one, that's fine. And then really savor that positive emotion. See what it's like to hang out with it for 10, 20, 30 seconds in a row. Sinking into the positive experience and all the while sensing that it is sinking into you. fine to keep feeling good to the extent you did. Um, I'd love to hear from just a couple people what that was like, good, bad, or indifferent. You know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? And then uh, I'll kind of comment on these uh, steps of taking the good, why they make sense, and then we'll do it again in a more structured way. So how was that for you? How many of you, let's say, if we could, a little feedback for me, how many of you were able to have some kind of positive emotional response, even a subtle or mild one, to bringing to mind some good facts. That's reassuring. Because if you didn't, we'd have to go really way back to the square one. Okay, that's good. All right. Anybody want to comment on what you noticed in your mind as you were doing those three steps? Please. It feels good to help people. It feels good to help people? Yes. 
That's what you were thinking of. Thank you. Feels good to help people. You're right, including when they don't know they're being helped. Truly generous. You know, nothing coming back. Yeah, it's great. How about another person? Yeah, please. Huh, interesting. Okay, so first time more on yourself. One thoughts arose. This is egotistical. We'll talk later about how it's actually good to feel good. It's good for the world for you to feel good. And then you also thought about other people, and that seemed even easier to feel good around. Yeah. Anybody had any difficulty with doing it? Yeah. Well, the first time I felt uh, it was easy for me to, to pick my feel good thing. And then uh, I started focusing on the feel good thing. And I had fear uh, that that feel-good thing wasn't going to last. Yeah. I really appreciate you saying that just so everyone could hear it. it, it tell me if I got it wrong, okay? Um, she was able to access a good experience, right? But as soon as she kind of noticed she was having a good experience, uh, the fear arose, uh-oh, I'm afraid this will go away, right? And that's very often the case, especially in the beginning. You know, it's, it's natural for those reactions to arise in the mind. Um, the trick, of course, is to keep taking in the good that the good experience can last. You know, okay. Maybe one more person, any difficulty or anything, yeah? And then I'll keep going. For me, it was very interesting when you said, let it, it sink into you. It was like, wow, that really was a yes. <laughs> that's wonderful. Thank, that, that's great. That's the point. So she was saying that when I said, the third step, which I'll get to in a minute, letting it sink into you. You know, sink into it as it sinks into you. Um, that was like something there clicked for you about it right, in, being in the body, right? And that was great. Yeah, that's exactly what the intention is. The intention is, you know, I don't know if this is really true, but I heard once that there's food in, Japanese, in Japan that's plastic food. It tastes great, but it has no nutritional value. It just goes right through. Whether that's true or not, it's a great metaphor. And I think that's the way it is a lot in life. For example, number one, there are good facts, and we don't even have an experience. But then also what happens is that we have a good experience, but we, it passes through so fast, it cannot transfer from short-term memory to long-term storage. It goes right through. And as I'll explain a little more later, negative experiences have special systems. They go right into long-term storage, whereas positive experiences pass through like water going through a sieve. Right? That's why we have to trick the mind. We, by, we trick the brain by um, making the positive experiences last, be intense, and be as much in the body as possible. That's how you, any school teacher knows, any teacher knows, that's how you help people remember anything. And that's what we're trying to do in taking in the good. For 10, 20, 30 seconds in a row, stay with it as intensely as possible. Uh, in the saying from the work of the Canadian psychologist, Donald Hebb, Neurons that fire together, wire together, right? Mental activity builds neural structure. So we want to get as many neurons firing together, right? So that they start wiring these resources into the fabric of the brain and therefore the self. So that's the point. Okay, good. So now I want to, if I could, use this experience to explain a few more things and then we'll go back into it again if you're willing to do that, all right? Okay, great. So the first point is that we're talking here about a response to positive facts. This is not about being Pollyanna. 
This is not about seeing the world through rose-colored glasses. I think, as we'll talk a little bit more later, <coughs> it's important to see the real tigers, the real tigers in the bushes, but evolution has given us a kind of paper tiger paranoia. In other words, where Mother Nature wants, you know, the two great mistakes in life, you know, especially for our ancient ancestors, you know, who are evolving, um, you know, one mistake is to think there's a tiger in the bushes when there is no tiger. The other mistake is to think there's no tiger and everything's fine, but there really is a tiger about to get you. <laughs> Mother Nature wants us to make the first mistake a hundred times, a thousand times, to avoid making the second mistake even once, right? So it's important to see the real tigers, to be sure. But on the whole, we are primed through evolution, through what's called the negativity bias of the brain, to preferentially scan for threats. Because threats tend to be more consequential in terms of passing on genes than opportunities are. For example, it's important to go get carrots, right? It's also important to avoid sticks. But in our evolutionary history, you know, our primate, mammal, and reptile ancestors, um, if they did not get a carrot today, they usually had a chance at a carrot tomorrow. But if they failed to avoid a stick today, a predator, a natural hazard, uh, social aggression in their primate band or their early hunter-gatherer band, wow, no more carrots forever, right? So the brain is biased toward looking for sticks, and then if it sees a stick, it reacts to that stick, okay? And then it stores it preferentially in different systems in the brain that are really focused on stick consciousness rather than carrot consciousness, if you will. And then anything that's remotely like that stick as we go through our days, it gets pulled right back up into awareness. There are a lot of examples of the negativity bias. You can go on Wikipedia and look it up. Um, they include things like research on couples, where it usually takes about five positive interactions to make up for a single negative one, right? Or what's called loss aversion, where people will work harder to avoid losing something they have rather than uh, gain something of equal value. The psychologist, actually, who figured this out in the realm of economics, Hahnemann, um, or Kahneman, rather, got a Nobel Prize for this. You know, this, this way in which people are loss-averse. Another example is how easy it is to train dogs that have emotional systems like humans, as well as how easy it is, alas, to train humans in helplessness, so that they learn helplessness, they learn a sense of futility, and how difficult it is it may take only six trials to train a dog in helplessness, but dozens and dozens, even over a hundred trials, to help that dog finally realize that he or she can do something about fate. You know, can function more as a hammer than a nail. Right? So we're biased in all of these ways. And that negativity bias is tilted toward passing on gene copies. It's a great way to promote survival. Think about it, right? Our ancient ancestors, you know, the nervous system has been evolving for around 600 million years. You know, life's been on the planet about three and a half billion years. Multi-celled creatures, about 650 million years. So just in terms of the evolution of the nervous system, our ancestors that were true north graduates, they were all mellow, like the mellow iguana, you know, the mellow little rat when the dinosaurs were running around. Wow. Far out, look at the light on the leaves. Just, I'm feeling so present, just open, spacious mindfulness, inner peace, wow. <laughs> right? 
They didn't notice the shadow nearby, you know, the crackle in the brush, the thing sneaking up on them. You know, the member of their band that was getting really mad and just ready to take them out, right? They didn't notice those things. They didn't pass on their genes. The ancestors who passed on their genes were nervous and cranky. And we are their great-grandchildren today at the top of the food chain, armed with nuclear weapons, you know, with caveman, cavewoman brains in the 21st century. That's one reason why I'm very motivated to do this work, because I think that this neurodharma stuff has some promise of helping, you know, make a contribution. It's not the only thing, obviously, but to make a contribution to help a critical mass of people become more skillful with these ancient caveman circuits in their own brain. All right? So that's some of the basis of the negativity bias. It's tilted toward passing on gene copies, but it's tilted against quality of life. Just to level the playing field, we need to tilt toward positive experiences. Okay, that just levels the playing field. It's natural, particularly given the negativity bias, when you're trying to focus on something positive, for negative experiences to arise. Quite natural. Probably, how many of you noticed that? When you started thinking about something positive, you sort of started thinking also about the opposite. Or including there was criticism even in your mind about, I can't do this, these are dumb instructions, or whatever, you know. Okay, anything like that, you don't have to admit it, but it was probably, I see if some nods, you know. It's pretty, very, very natural. That's really natural, that's really okay. And what you want to do when you're practicing this method is think of it as a kind of a mindfulness practice. To be aware of the obstruction, it's fine. It's just the obstruction. To be aware of the obstruction, appreciate it, gently nudge it aside, and bring the spotlight of attention back to the object of attention, which is in this case, not the breath or a mantra or a bell or something like that, but it's a positive experience. Attention is under conscious control. In many ways, it's the most powerful way to change the mind because attention illuminates what it rests upon and then, like a vacuum cleaner, sucks it into the brain. Right? It's a spotlight in a vacuum cleaner. And as I'll talk more about tomorrow in some depth, you know, what we bring, yes, neurons that fire together, wire together throughout the nervous system. But the ones that really create neural structure are in the field of conscious awareness. So if we deliberately bring focal attention to a resource that we want to promote uh, the, the building of, or we really want to promote it sinking into ourselves, um, by bringing conscious attention to it, we turbocharge neuroplasticity which means essentially the building of neural structure based on mental activity. In effect, it's self-directed neuroplasticity. That's what we're really talking about here tonight. Self-directed deliberate neuroplasticity where you yourself are taking charge of the spotlight and using it deliberately and skillfully to build wholesome factors inside your own mind. And as we get to later on tonight, um, to also help remedy uh, areas in your life where you didn't get enough good supplies. Maybe in your last job or your last marriage or your last childhood, or at least your only childhood, at least in this life, right? Or deal with some wounds. And that'll be the fourth step of taking in the good, which we'll get into in the last half hour today. Okay, so that's the larger context. So let's try this again, a little more deeply, if you're willing to. We're gonna go through the three steps I'll start out by being fairly explicit about the three steps. We'll go through this with four specific targets or types of good facts. I I'll encourage you, you don't have to, but I'll encourage you to focus on. But by the time we get to the fourth one, 
I'll say less and less because methods guy that I am, I want to help you learn this method. So you'll be doing it more and more on your own. The three steps are, just a quick review, they were present in the, uh, what we did in the very beginning, the kind of hors d'oeuvre, I guess. Um, identify a good fact and let a good fact become a good experience. Two, savor that experience 10, 20, 30 seconds in a row, helping it be as intense, as lasting, and as whole body as possible. And third, sense and intent that it's sinking into you, going into you, becoming a part of yourself. People sense and intend in different ways. Sometimes they visualize a kind of light or a golden syrup, a kind of balm going down inside. With kids, this is a great technique, by the way, for kids, especially if they're either anxious or spirited, ADHD, you know, ends of the temperamental spectrum. I'll talk about a jewel going into the treasure chest of the heart. Sometimes people just know it's going in. All right. However you do that is really okay. And one thing you can also do that's called embodied cognition um, is, if it works for you, deliberately um, move your body subtly into the posture of the good experience you're taking in. For example, if you're taking in a feeling of strength, sit up a little straighter. You know, not like you're in the army now or stiff or something, but a little straighter. Or if you're feeling mildly happy, allow a soft half smile to come across your face. There's been a lot of research about this idea of embodied cognition, which has established that the foundation of higher order thinking is sensory motor learning. So if you do something in the sensory motor system, like sit up a little straighter to promote the felt sense of strength, when my wife is talking to me about a problem she has, and it could be me, right? You know, the natural tendency is to kind of lean back. <laughs> so I help myself keep my mind in the game by leaning a little more toward her, which also calms her down a little bit too, which is good for all of us. Um, so anyway, uh, that's an example of embodied cognition. Okay, so those are the three steps. The first uh, suggestion in terms of what to um, focus on is gratitude. Gratitude is a very wonderful, underrated emotion. Just think of something that naturally evokes gratitude from you, a sense of thankfulness, maybe a sense of something given to you. Okay, that'll be the first one. So let's try it, okay? So bring to mind a good fact, something that's objectively the case, that in the first step elicits a sense of gratitude in you. It could well be a very subtle or mild sense of gratitude but a sense of gratitude. And then second step, savor this experience of gratitude. Sink into it. Let it fill you. Be gratitude. And all the while, the third step, sensing, intending that this experience is sinking into you as you sink into it.
okay. So coming back, it's, it's okay for feeling grateful to be in the background. A little detail here, it's really, it, I'm going to put this, the number of words for negative emotions greatly exceeds the number of words for positive emotions in every language pretty much that's ever been studied. I know it's certainly the case for English and I'm sure it's the case for French because they looked at the major language families. French is obviously a major language. That's an example of the negativity bias. We have a lot more nuances and differentiation of negative experiences. That's why it's actually really useful to come home to and become familiar with nuances of positive experiences. Like, how is gratitude distinct from gladness? Right? Or how is gratitude maybe distinct from appreciation? Or what is just simply the felt sense of gratitude in the body? At a certain level, at the highest level, the brain and the mind, which intertwine, and we'll talk more about that tomorrow, how they do that, is quite extraordinary and magnificent and still very mysterious. Okay? No matter how sure of myself I may sound, we really don't know so much about this stuff. On the other hand, deeper down, the brain is really mechanical. It's very, very simple. At a certain deep level, it is kind of like a big jukebox. You know what a jukebox is? It's like old-fashioned. You push buttons and it plays songs. Right? The brain's like a big jukebox. Stimulus, response. Stimulus hits the button, response is the song. Often the button that gets hit is some painful button like, I've been cheated and mistreated. When will I be loved? Right? It's country and western. I don't know if the equivalent of that is in Canada. If you have that here, I don't know. Um, okay. Uh, on the other hand, it's great to be able to increasingly have control of the mental jukebox so that we can manage these songs that are painful or unwholesome or cause suffering for others as well as ourselves, and increasingly become able to activate resource states to at will call forth positive states of mind, positive factors in the mind. That's the finding that's really established now in Western psychology and, and positive psychology the importance of being able to activate positive resource states, including the ways in which activating positive resource states in ourselves helps move people to be more generous, to be more patient, to be more even-keeled, to be more large-hearted to other people. And certainly in the Buddhist tradition, and I think as well in other uh, contemplative traditions, Buddhism is the contemplative tradition I know best, but also in other contemplative traditions, this idea of cultivation, the term in the original language term is bhavana in Buddhism and Hinduism, cultivation. The idea of cultivating positive qualities of, of heart and mind and body. All right? How do we actually do that? Well, that's what we want to do when we play the inner jukebox. We want to be able to tap it and call forth that state of mind increasingly at will. The way to do that is to be able to have a very clear um, you know, emotional memory of that state of mind so we can follow the breadcrumbs and get there back again. That's why being aware of these positive states um, is actually very useful. So let's try it again with another positive state of mind. This time, feeling cared about. Okay? So you, you feeling cared about. So if you could, let's try it again. The first step, bring to mind a sense of being with someone 
that you know cares about you. It could be a person in your, from your childhood, like a grandmother. It could be a, or someone today. It could be a, an animal companion, a dog, a cat, a favorite horse. It could be a group of people. It could be a spirit entity, an angel, God perhaps. Whatever it is, in the first step, see if you can access the knowing of being cared about and let it become the felt sense of being cared about. Again, it could be mild. That's fine. That you matter to another person. They wish you well. Maybe they appreciate value you, and as a result, you feel cared about. Taking you into the second step of really enjoying, relishing, savoring the experience of being cared about. It may be mild and subtle. That's fine. It's common for other experiences to arise, like not feeling cared about. That's okay. Let them go and bring the spotlight of attention as best you can to the experience of being cared about. And all the while, the third step of sensing and intending that it's sinking into you. Sometimes with feeling cared about, it helps to put your hand on your cheek or your hand on your heart. Most people have their eyes closed, so no one will know you're doing this. Great. Okay. It's all right to continue feeling cared about. Let's let this go a little bit and then move to the next target of a feeling of accomplishment. So first step, as you can, bring to mind a fact of something you've accomplished recently or in the past. It could be quite simple, like finishing some dishes or a load of laundry or getting the kids to bed, or getting to the bottom of your email stack, something I scratch and claw routinely to do, um, or maybe something bigger, some major project. So bring to mind a fact of an accomplishment, and then let yourself feel a sense of accomplishing. Moving into the second step of savoring this experience of getting something done. 
perhaps, with an associated sense of self-worth. All the while, the third step of this experience sinking into you, sensing and intending that it sink in. Great. Come on back. And the last one. Bring to mind a good fact of some good quality in yourself. You don't need to have a halo to have a good quality. Ordinary simple things like determination or endurance. Being able to put up with a lot and keep going or intelligence, or joyfulness, or warm-heartedness, whatever. And work your way through the three steps here. Recognizing a factually good quality in yourself, and letting yourself really feel that good quality that good aspect of you. And then moving through savoring it and sensing it really sink in. Sensing the experiencing of this good quality really sinking in. Okay. By the way, thank you for putting up with this. You know, you don't know me and you're, I'm taking you on kind of a ride here and you know, with your consent, tapping some buttons on your jukebox. And I just appreciate your willingness to go with this. Um, <clears throat> and so, how was that? I'd appreciate hearing from some people what worked for you, what didn't work, and I'll use this discussion right here as a chance also to make some additional key points. If, so, anybody want to comment or share? How was it for you? Please. Uh, I want to comment on the being cared of. Being what? Cared about? Yeah. Cared, about. cared for? Yes. Yeah, that was very interesting in me because uh, I really didn't think about anybody. I was oh, I'm going to have problems with you. But then you, you talk about God or animals. Yeah, thank you. Sometimes you have to remember, oh, 
That's great. Uh, so she was saying that feeling cared about, it was hard initially to access something, but then when, as I just kind of went through some possibilities, God or animals, let's say, and which for many people it is very interesting where they feel most loved is their pet. It's easiest, it's very concrete. Yeah, or God, whatever, be, you know, something. Or sometimes for people it's more diffuse, like feeling somehow when they, like I go out in nature, I love nature and trees and stuff. I, I go under trees, I'm happy, I don't know why. I go into trees, I'm happy, I, there's something, I belong there. Um, so that's great, and the larger point is it's really okay and it's good to be resourceful on your own behalf. In other words, to look around for ways to activate these positive resource states. Okay, other people? Yeah, in the back, please. The idea of being taken care of is actually quite simple. Life takes care of me essentially the ingress. Out of it, everything will arise. If I don't get the ingress, nothing matters. Yeah, that's great, thank you, thank you. And thanks for projecting so I didn't have to repeat it. Okay, other people? Yeah, right there. I noticed the negative talk that came up on three of the four of them, so it was interesting for me to see. So one, I sort of feel clear, I could go right into it, and the other three, there's a you know, little sort of thing sort of trying to eat away at it. Or yeah, that often is a teaching right there. She was saying that there were differences. There are four targets I went through. Um, and let's see, it was gratitude, accomplishment, feeling cared about, and a good quality in yourself. And it's interesting to notice the ones that are easy to go to and the ones that stir up more stuff in the mind. Aha, a clue. <laughs> that might be a place to look more. It's great. Maybe, oh, right there? Great. Yeah, so I've been doing this kind of practice on not unconsciously, but not Larry's the best for the last couple of weeks. But I notice how much my mind has become positive. Positive. Yeah. Great. Because um, anyway, instead of uh, always going back to bad things, yeah. I go back to what's good. And it, it's once you start doing it, it makes a big difference. Yeah. It's incredible. I know. I'm very happy for you that, about that. She was saying that she's, um, before tonight, was just naturally doing these something along the lines of this method, and just for a couple of weeks, and really noticed that it was having a big difference. And just to support that, there's been some recent research on what's called the three blessings exercise, which is a very simple practice of before going to bed, um, you know, just bringing to mind three things that make you feel happy or grateful you're glad about, and just be with it a, a, a minute or two or something. That practice alone had such a big effect on people that it startled the scientists who were doing the study, right? And um, so the, the, the first point is that these practices, particularly as I'll talk more about them, a handful of times a day, okay? In other words, going through life, Something nice happens, you get something done, there's a good event, someone has given you a hug, you know, someone has treated you well, uh, you know, whatever it is, the sun is shining, you're not dead yet, you know, anything, right? <laughs> cookies taste good, thank goodness for cookies, you know. I'm in Montreal, I'm so happy, like, wow, this is amazing, I'm walking around here, it's great. Um, so anything like that happens half a dozen times a day for 30 seconds, that's three minutes total, right? That's an opportunity to take that in. and those. Basically, you get those neurons firing together. You're going to get them wiring together for yourself. That's point one. Point two, um, I did not invent taking in the good, right? Lots of people have talked about this. I think this 
practice to deliberately internalize positive experiences is at the heart of uh, most many methods in psychotherapy and many forms of spiritual practice. You know, so I don't claim any special ownership, and I think a lot of people in this room have invented this method too, right? Um, all I've tried to do is sort of explicate it, unpack the elements of it, the steps, and kind of think about how to apply it. But yeah, that's great. Thank you. Maybe another few people? Yeah, right there. Uh, yeah. She was saying that she noticed that uh, there were often emotional blends, right? Or maybe one emotion like gratitude was followed fairly quickly by sadness, which might be followed fairly quickly by a kind of heartfelt, compassionate sorrow, kind of followed maybe by something else, you know, and how to do that. That's very natural. Um, if you're doing this particular practice, partly because at the deeper levels the brain is pretty mechanical, it's about quantity, intensity, and duration. So as much as you can, you're, you're trying to bow to the other emotions like sadness and so forth, and then bring the spotlight of attention back to whatever it is, the positive experience that you're particularly trying to bring in. And I'll talk later on about what I call antidote experiences, the, the experiences that are we know for ourselves, they're the vitamin we need. You know, it's like if you have scurvy, you need vitamin C, right? If you could take all the vitamin B you, need, you want, you won't cure the scurvy, you need a particular vitamin. Later on I'll talk about the particular experiences that are targeted for our own holes in the heart. That's what I call antidote experiences. And those are the ones in particular that we want to especially internalize into em, em, what's called emotional memory. Okay. Any other comments right there? Would you accept to say a few words about the, the difference between the, between the mind and the brain? Okay. Thank you. That's a deep and excellent and really important question. What is the difference between the mind and the brain? And I'll try to do this very quickly and then keep, keep um, with these more practical methods. Um, I def as many neuro neurologically oriented people do, I define the mind as the flows of information through the nervous system. The nervous system moves information around like the heart moves blood around. Information is a signal. So for example, there is information that's being sensed when the oxygen saturation in the blood drops below a certain level that increases the rate of inhaling and exhaling, increases the rate of breathing. That's a signal, that's information. If a sound arrives, that's information. And uh, certain sounds translate as language, other sounds are not language. You know, it's informative which are linguistic, which is French, which is English. No offense, but Pascal starts speaking in French, I don't pay the closest attention, because I know it's hopeless anyway. You know, but then David says something in English, suddenly I'm oriented to it. Those are all information. Most of the information moving through the nervous system is outside of awareness. We privilege what's in the field of awareness because it's what we're aware of, it's what we're conscious of, you know. But most information is in the shadows. I think of the field of awareness as a bit like a stage with a spotlight there. And um, uh, we can sense dimly kind of what's in the shadows on stage, but mostly we're aware of what's under the focal spotlight of attention. 
But so much is in the wings, either temporarily, and then we bring it onto the stage if we want to. Like, for example, notice the sensations in your left big toe. That was very, very in the distance, right? But when you notice, when you brought awareness to it, you'd realize you were aware of your sensations in your big toe all along, pretty much. They were just out there. That was something you could bring into the, under the spotlight. But there are other things, like reach for a cup, okay? No one can consciously say, these are the motor scripts, the motor programs that reach for a cup. Or, if you'll do this with me for a second here, reach for a cup yourself, an imaginary cup. Okay, good. Pull your hand back. Great, now watch me reach for a cup. Okay. Some neurons, some fraction, they're called mirror neurons or mirror networks, in your brain, about 10% or so ballpark, of the same neurons that lit up when you reached for a cup, also lit up when I reached for a cup. Okay, sympathetically. That process is outside of conscious awareness. Okay, that's just an example. So for me, part of the, one of the takeaways um, from this neuroscience stuff is to really appreciate the importance of planting seeds, you know, deep underground in the garden of the mind and letting them and fertilizing them so they grow. Really appreciating the tendencies, the inclinations, the unconscious biases or frames of mind that are outside of the field of awareness. We're much more caught usually by what's outside of awareness than we're caught by what's inside of awareness. So anyway, so thank you very much for that. Um, okay, a couple points I want to make and then maybe also hear from a couple more people. Um, I want to say like a framework that sometimes it comes up. It's a natural objection. But wait a second here. Isn't this sort of manipulative to focus on good experiences? Or wait, wait, wait. What about just mindfulness? Right? Maybe I'm just supposed to be mindful. How does, how does this fit in? Okay. Or is it another form of grasping? Is it another form of greed to go after good experiences? These are very reasonable questions. A way for me that works to think about this is to think about three fundamental phases in any kind of psychological growth or healing or even spiritual practice. And there are these three fundamental phases. The first phase is to be with what's there. Open, spacious mindfulness. Presence, what Pema Chodron, for example, calls staying or bearing, we be with it. All right? After a while, and then sometimes, sometimes, just being with it is transformative. Our relationship to it, whatever it is, is altered. And sometimes it changes just through the process of being with it. Spaciously, with acceptance, without resistance, without recoil, with interest, we're, we're being present with it, okay? But as everybody from the Buddha to modern psychologists have taught, very often just being with it is not enough. One of the things that's happened in Western Buddhism is that the element of mindfulness has become overemphasized, in my personal opinion, and, and I think there are others who have that opinion as well. Mindfulness is really important. It's primary, because we can always be with it, okay? But it's not the only thing. And that moves us to the second phase, which is working with what's there, actively. What the Buddha called wise effort, where we're both trying to release or let go of, 
negative factors. I don't mean negative morally, I mean negative pragmatically. And we're trying to encourage positive factors. Wise effort. Or to put it a different kind of way, we're trying to release what we've been present with. First phase, we're with it. Let's suppose it's something unpleasant or painful or anger, sorrow, um, shame, humiliation, heartache, fear, whatever it is, we're with it. Then we move to, to releasing it, right? And there are a lot of technologies about releasing it. Bodily relaxation, uh, imagery, cognitive therapy methods uh, where we dispute negative thoughts, you know, we dispute wrong thoughts, things like that, other methods as well. And then the third phase where we replace what we've released. Okay? Summarized in effect in six words, the three phases in six words. Let be, let go, let in. Right. Taking in the good is in the third phase. And sometimes what we need to do to do the first phase of being with, of letting it be, is we need to build up resources from the third phase so that we can stand it. Right? So we bring to mind, for example, the felt sense of being cared about because that helps us stay with this difficult and unbearable thing. So then we, after we stay with it for a while, then we can more effectively move into letting go. Now people vary in where they are with these phases. Myself, uh, I was really good at letting go. I didn't like this staying with stuff. First phase, I didn't like it. Then I came across mindfulness more and I thought, okay, okay, okay. For my letting go to have real integrity, for the second phase to have real integrity, we've got to do the first phase properly. All right. I've known other people, though, who get stuck in the first phase. They get stuck to the painful negative experience and past the point of usefulness because neurons that fire together wire together, okay? They're just doing another lap in hell. One more lap in hell, deepening the groove in the track. Just one more lap in hell. So another takeaway for me from this neuroscience stuff is to become much more thoughtful about the voices murmuring in the back of the mind because those neurons are firing, therefore they're wiring in the back of the mind. Those little yakety yaks, or I call them mini movies, uh, you know, thematically like themes of mistreatment or powerlessness or helplessness or personal worthlessness or failure or futility in the back of the mind, those are conditioning the brain. Right? There's a place to be aware of them and not make ourselves wrong for having them, but to me at least, pragmatically, I guess, and I think this is certainly consistent with you know, what the Buddha taught, um, past the point of usefulness, it's time to help them move on. That's the second phase. And then we replace what we've let go of. Anyway, these three phases for me are a very useful way to frame this whole notion of taking in the good. All three are important. I think the first phase is frankly the most fundamental. That said, there's a real place for bhavana, for cultivation, for the development of wholesome, useful factors, you know, in the mind and heart. So what can we take in? We take in emotions, positive emotions. We take in positive bodily sensations, okay? We can also take in positive views, insight, outlook, perspective. We take that in as well. And we can also take in the felt sense of certain kinds of behaviors. For example, um, I was raised in a home where I was supposed to be, you know, quiet, get good grades, have no, express no emotions, and just kind of disappear to some extent. 
And I had parents who were very loving. Uh, my father's still alive and he's a great guy. But that was kind of my upbringing in a lot of ways. So when I came into adulthood, one of the breakthroughs for me was the, that I could actually tell people what I really thought, including if I was mad. I could really say it if I was mad. Like for me, that was a breakthrough. So when I finally got up to kind of expressing myself assertively, that's an experience to take in. When a person's been, let's say, they've learned some new way of being that's useful. Obviously expressing anger, there are more or less skillful ways to do that. As the Buddha said, expressing anger is like throwing hot coals with bare hands. Both people get burned, right? So it's important to be careful about it, but that said, any kind of positive behavioral learning, that's also something that can be really, really registered. So those neurons fire together, so they wire together, so we really have captured that benefit for ourselves. Okay, so those are the multiple things to take in. Now, what are the uses of taking in the good, of internalizing positive experiences? One, if we go through life, um, you know, the problem is, <laughs> it's weird to think about it, the natural state of the brain is that it's like Velcro for negative experiences, but Teflon for positive ones, <laughs> right? Because of the negativity bias. So if on the other hand, we go through life and we orient to life in a different way, not Pollyanna, not, not overlooking the real tigers, but observing the fact that the, for most people, most of the time, the majority of facts in their world are, are mildly positive. All right, little things, lots of little things that are pretty all right. All right, if we go through life taking the experiences of that in, that will build up positive implicit memory in general. Implicit memory is not memory for specific events. That's explicit memory, memory for recollections. Implicit memory is emotional memory, attitudinal memory, um, expectations, response biases, orientations to the world. It's really what matters. It's in the shadows. It's below the waterline. It's off stage, as it were. But it really shapes what happens on stage. So if we go through life taking in positive experiences, we're going to build up positive implicit memory. More specifically, it helps us have our growth stick to the ribs. Haven't you had the experience like you learned something? Like you're talking to your partner and you realize, wow, that didn't work, right? Or, no, from now on, I need to do this. Or you wake up the next morning and you think, three glasses of wine is enough, right? <laughs> or whatever your personal number is. And then you, yes, yes, I'm going to do that. Or you think, I've got to go to the gym, okay? I'm going to go to the gym. I go to the gym. It feels good. I should go to the gym many times a week. Maybe I should go to the gym daily whatever the lesson is. And then, how long does it last? All right? Does it stick to the ribs? For me, the gym, no. I'm still working on that one. Okay. So another thing that's useful for taking in the good is to really have the lessons of life sink in. I'm a therapist. I think about a lot of experiences I've had with people who really get things. And, it does, and then they, they forget it by the time they get to the bottom of the stairs. And we're going to start over the next week. I think of myself the number of times I've gotten things, including spiritual insights, and then they fade. So by really taking the extra 30 seconds, because that's usually about all it is, and maybe a few cycles that are 30 seconds long, of really registering what this experience is like, we can help our, our learning curve as we go through life get as steep as possible. So that's another benefit or another way to use taking in the good. A third is to reward us for doing what's good for us and other people. You know, if you think about it, in life, it's easy to do what's good, you know, for us in the world that we want to do. The hard thing to do, of course, is what's good for us in the world that we don't want to do. 
So how do we help ourselves? Motivation is the key. You know the old joke about how many therapists it takes to change a light bulb? Only one. But the light bulb has to want to change. Right? It's like stupid but profound. Motivation is the key. Motivation is so fundamental. I mean, there's a Buddhist saying about everything rests on the tip of intention. It's all about intention. Which way does it go? So how do we help motivate ourselves toward what we want to do, how we want to increasingly incline the mind and incline our life? Well, one way is to associate rewards with those positive, those good intentions, those good motivations, right? And then really savor those rewards so increasingly the mind or the brain, which at a lower level is kind of primitive like a donkey, it keeps going after that carrot. Right? We're dangling the carrot through repeated experiences of this positive you know, experience and then the mind increasingly do, 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 goes in that direction. So after I have like a good workout at the gym, you know, I'm, I'm shameless. Way to go, Rick. Oh, that feels good. Good. Look at that bicep. It's getting bigger. <laughs> Staving off old age, disease, and death. One more day. All right. You know, take it in, whatever works for you. Okay? All right, good. So, okay, here's another one. You know, this whole idea of paper tiger paranoia. You know, we're so naturally threat reactive. I talked about that earlier, right? We, we, we go through life, the natural kind of automatic state of the brain is to overestimate threats, underestimate opportunities, underestimate resources. Right? And that happens in the way we go through life, it happens interpersonally a lot. Let's say you're in a relationship, 20 things have happened in the day, you know, 10 were kind of neutral, 9 were fairly pleasant with your partner, 1 irritated you. What's the one you're thinking about? Is your <laughs> I'm right now I'm thinking about my wife. I can't believe I'm thinking about something that irritated me. See what I mean? Right there we are. I love my wife. She's awesome. So there you are. So. How do we work with that? And you also see the implications in the world. You know, paper tiger paranoia. I don't know what this story is in, in Canada, but I fly a lot in America. But every minute, every few minutes, you hear this little recorded voice. The Department of Homeland Security has determined that it's threat level orange. Well, I used to do risk analyses. I have a business background before I became a therapist. And orange, that's the last stop before red, right? So what's the risk level orange? You kind of think, got to be more than 50, at least 50%. A bad thing's going to happen today, right? 60, 70 percent. Well, what's the likelihood of a bad event on your flight today? It's green with a drop of yellow. Threat level chartreuse, all right? But we feel a lot that we're living in a threat level orange world when in fact most of what's happening around us is not that way at all. So the natural evolutionary tendency toward paper tiger paranoia then gets increased by temperament. Some people are more anxious than others. It also gets increased by personal life experiences and then increased by just the flood of media we're subjected to, which the brain did not evolve to handle this incoming fire hose of, of inputs which rattle us. And then beyond that gets manipulated by you know media and, and politicians. So. One way to undo paper tiger paranoia is to really focus on taking in the felt sense of feeling objectively, reasonably safe. Or the experience of opportunities or the experience of resources. To build up the, a learning that helps us have greater confidence and a realistically based confidence for dealing with the world. All right. About one more thing to say and then I'll open it up again, okay? All right, great. So actually I have more than one more thing, but I'll just say it fast. So another one is to learn helplessness, right? We're vulnerable to learn helplessness. 
if you have experiences of efficacy, of being a hammer instead of a nail, right? The cue ball instead of the eight ball, take that in. Good. All right. Questions or comments so far? All the way in the back. Okay, so the question is how does, let's say, a retreat practice like three days or seven days or ten or three months even or longer, how does that relate to this idea, generally speaking? It's interesting because I was going to talk about synergies between taking in the good and mindfulness-based stress reduction. How many of you, by the way, um, are therapists? Okay, quite a few. How many of you have taken MBSR or give it or know it or mindfulness-based stress reduction? Quite a few people. All right, so it kind of goes to this point. I think that what's striking often is the degree to which people will make a major investment of going on retreat for three days or longer and will have very, very powerful experiences on retreat that won't stick to the ribs very much. They won't have that much lasting value, right? It's not something people kind of talk about that much because as teachers we're embarrassed about it. And as on the other side going through it, it feels like a failure. That's why I think that on retreat or in any high value learning experience, help yourself really register this experience. Help it stick with you. So for me, you know, this practice of gently, without craving and clinging, opening to and, and allowing the mind to be changed. You know, there's a traditional saying, the mind takes the shape of what it rests upon. The elaboration of that in neuroscience is um, neurons that fire together wire together. They're just saying the same thing at different levels of explanation. So if while on retreat or at other times in life when we have an important lesson, really let the mind dwell upon it through sustaining attention to it in as intense a way as possible and as whole bodied a way as possible, and that's how to help it really, really sink in. There's also been a lot of research about how mindfulness practices uh, in general and meditation in particular change the brain. Of all the mental trainings, in terms of their impact on the brain, meditation's been the one that's been most studied. Partly because it's kind of sexy, you know, and also because people initially disputed it. But there's been research that shows, for example, that people who routinely uh, do a mindfulness practice have measurably thicker parts of the brain. They build synaptic layers in parts of the brain that are involved with controlling attention and tuning into the interior state of the body, which sounds kind of makes sense. What's interesting there as well is that those parts of the brain have other purposes as well. So if you, for example, build up neural circuitry in the anterior, which means frontal cingulate cortex, it's a part of the brain that's involved in the executive control of attention, that part of the brain is also involved in integrating thinking and feeling. It's also a part of the brain that constructs the suffering dimension of physical pain. So if you train it increasingly, to kind of stay in a calmer and you know, more affectively, emotionally positive state, 
you get an additional side benefit in terms of think, you know, integrating thinking and feeling and also dealing with, with pain, for example. Another detail is that when you build out the part of the brain that does, as I said a moment ago, interoception, that's the insula, kind of inside the temporal lobes. And there are two of them. There are two of almost all these things, but they're always talked about as if there's just one of them. Anyway, the insula is involved not just in tuning into ourselves, but in emotional empathy. So research has shown that people who routinely have a mindfulness practice for their own inner state, number one, thicken the insula, number two, become more aware of their internal state, and three, become more empathic for the emotions of others. So that's another uh, illustration of this general idea of using the mind to change the brain to benefit the mind, including in multiple ways. Okay, maybe one more person, yeah. And then we'll go into the fourth step of taking in the good, filling the hole in the heart. Yeah. I just have a question about um, if you're constantly uh, trying to disarm this process of, of being fooled by the paper tigers in the grass, are you not leaving yourself open to the one time there's a real tiger? Great question. If you are, then... That's dumb. Yeah. So he said, you know, if you're... If you're going, if you're trying to disarm this paper tiger paranoia, don't you don't you open yourself up to the risk of real tigers? You could, and I think it's really really important to not do that. On the other hand, and you really see this not to go political here, but I think the examples are fairly obvious. When people become preoccupied with paper tigers, they often miss the real ones because they're just flooded with incoming signals. Paper tiger, paper tiger, and you know, nah, nah, nah. They also make errors about allocating resources because they just think there are all these tigers out, so we better build up our military, or we better do this, or I better arm myself against what my mother-in-law or father-in-law might do next Thanksgiving, or whatever the Canadian equivalent is, I don't know, the holidays, right? We, we arm ourselves against that instead of taking those resources into something more opportunistic and approach-oriented and positive, including being of benefit to others, right? So um, for me, it's about, just as the Buddha taught, it's about seeing clearly. The fundamental root of suffering in the Buddhist frame, and see for yourself if this makes sense to you, is not seeing the truth. The truth includes real tigers. It also includes a brain that's evolved to be deluded about the extent of threats and to miss opportunities and underestimate resources as well. And so that's where, business guy that I am, you know, I've seen both sides of it. I've seen people who don't, uh, who really don't register threats. I've seen a lot of other people, probably more commonly, you know, who are just excessively threat focused. Because we are so threat reactive. Again, one of the takeaways for me from this, um, and I just wrote about it in my most recent uh, newsletter, is to really appreciate how reactive we are to feeling threatened in very subtle ways. People start talking quickly or move toward us, you know, a little, a little too close, right? Suddenly it's like, whoa, wait a second, back off, you know? Um, the flip of that is to start to really appreciate, sorry, David, there. You was okay, I think you were, gave your body up for science. Good prop. Yeah, that's right, it was a willing prop. I don't know you, but I knew him. He was okay, you look pretty nice though. Anyway, um, it's to appreciate how threatening we are to others, needlessly. We raise our voice, we wave our hands, we, you know, we do stuff, we say things, we're provocative in our language, we're inflammatory, right, in our language. We, we use excessive things, always, never, you know, ugh. We do what my wife used to call me on, and I try not to do anymore. Ready, watch my face, one, two, three. 
<laughs> we do stuff like that, right? It bugs people. It reactivates them. Why do that? You know, the Buddha had a line, give no person cause to fear you. Give them cause to expect that if they mistreat you, they'll pay a price. They'll have to deal with it. You'll be talking with them about it. You know, give them cause to expect, if it's appropriate, that they won't be working for you any longer if they don't come to work on time. Or your kid, give them cause to expect that there'll be consequences if they, whatever, you know, you know steal the family car. Um, but that's different from being needlessly, you know, threatening to people. So I just want to say that. Okay. So in the interest of time, all right, I want to move on to the filling the hole in the heart. This is, now this is where we really start moving into the deep end of the pool. So just to reiterate, really take good care of yourself. Um, don't do anything you don't want to do. Make sure you can get back to the shallow end of the pool. All right? Like right there. <laughs> I'll bet you nickel that if we wired us all in here, our heartbeat would have sped up slightly, but measurably, at the advent of that alarm out there. That's, it's really useful actually to watch the degree of threat reactivity, the subtleties of it, and to watch other people, and to also watch what happens when we be with them in a way that does not um, unconsciously and unnecessarily and unskillfully activate their threat reactivity. And we can do little things to kind of preemptively, not manipulatively, but preemptively keep sending the message, you know, the open hand, you know, no weapons, right? No cause to fear me. Okay. So, let me just explain the antidote experiences and then let's dive in. Let's do a practice here and then we'll talk about it. Okay? So, um, speaking for myself, uh, as I grew up, for various reasons, including being really young, going through school, I felt separated from my peers a lot, like they were there and I was looking at them through a glass wall, you know, about a foot of glass. So, I did not get a lot of experiences of feeling connected with or seen or valued. I did have a lot of experiences of autonomy. I got to go in the woods and the, the, the natural world outside of my, my home where I grew up in the outskirts of Los Angeles as a kid. So I had a lot of autonomy, but I didn't have much felt sense of mattering to others or being seen by them. That was my particular hole in the heart. So going forward in life, when I had experiences of autonomy or efficacy, being a hammer, not a nail, those were nice, but that wasn't my vitamin C. My particular vitamin C was experiences of feeling recognized and, uh, and valued. That was important for me. Okay? And so that, for me, was a psychological antidote to my particular hole in my heart, which is usually an area of shortage, like we didn't get enough of the supplies, the normal healthy psychological supplies we needed, or a place of wounding. That's what I mean when I say a hole in the heart. All right. Now, if you know what your own personal hole in the heart is, and there are probably a few people in this room who do not know what I'm talking about. Right? Most of us do have a felt sense of something was missing or something got bruised, you know, either in our childhood, and not necessarily from our parents. Very often it's from peers. Sometimes it's from siblings or other relatives. Or further on in our adulthood, we often have a sense that there's some particular vitamin C that would really work for us. Okay? Now, if you know what that is, you can go out just using the first three steps of taking in the good to go get it. 
Like for example, I then, when I became increasingly clear about this in my 20s, I'm 57 now, um, I would go out in the world and I would look for experiences of, of being valued or mattered, mattering, and I would really kind of try to feel that. I would try to register it. Okay. Additionally, and this goes to how memory works and using the machinery of memory to kind of trick it. Additionally, you can bring this positive supply into contact with that old place of pain or shortage or lack and gradually soothe through repetition legitimately that old place of pain and even gradually fill it up or even replace that, that place of pain in the past. And the way this works is that when we remember something, including implicit memory, which is to say not for specific events, but if we just simply activate or bring into a state of awareness a little bit, as the woman over there was saying, a sense of sorrow comes up related to gratitude somehow. When things like that are activated, they come into the field of awareness. That's from implicit memory. All right? When something is pulled up into awareness, it's not done as it is in a computer where the whole record is pulled up. But rather, what we remember is little features of something which are then elaborated into awareness as the whole thing. In other words, in a computer, when you see something on your screen, like you pull up a photograph, every pixel in that photograph is somehow mapped to uh, zeros and ones you know, deep in your hard drive. Whereas in the brain, there is not, not that one-to-one -one mapping. The picture, the photograph, if you will, is reconstructed newly each time. The brain just has so much processing power and it's so fast that it, it seems like you're pulling it up from storage, but it's like a magician's trick. It's recreated, you know, it's CG'd, computer graphics, right then and there in the inner simulator, okay? It's a, it's a very efficient way also to not exceed the storage capacities of the brain, which would be blown out of the water after a while if people just had perfect recall, okay? So, when we stop thinking about this implicit memory, it goes back down into storage, and during that period, when it's reconsolidated, it's very vulnerable to change. For example, in rat studies, who've learned that if you go down the right-hand tunnel, zzz, there's a little electrical shock, all right? If you have them go down that tunnel, and they, you bring them out, and then you have them walk around a little bit, and then you inject them, they forget that the right-hand tunnel had an electric shock. The scientist who was probably primarily involved in developing this, um, Joseph Ledoux, actually got an email from some man who said, I read about your research. Can you make me forget my ex-wife? <laughs> he could have gone the other way. It could have been a woman. Can you make me forget my ex-husband? Right? But he said, no, no, you can't do it. These drugs are really toxic. But there are psychological methods here. And one of them is this fourth step of taking in the good. So what this step is, is to hold two things in, in awareness at once. One is prominent. The positive state of experience is prominent. It's in the foreground of awareness. And in the back, there's a dim sense of this hole in the heart, this old painful material. You can't do this unless you can do two things. One is divide attention. Now, mindfulness of something is a kind of divided attention, right? You've got to be mindful to do taking in the good. Mindfulness is really, really central. So, but you've got to be able to hold two things in awareness at once. And the second is you've got to be able to keep the positive one prominent. Because 
which if both things are held in, in working memory at once, when the old painful memory gets reconsolidated, it takes with it some of the associations of whatever was also held in consciousness at the same time. Neurons that fire together wire together. It's about the simultaneity of the, of the, of the firing. So on the other hand, if of the two things held in consciousness, the negative is more prominent, it will gradually overpower the positive one. So it's very important to not be hijacked by the negative material, which is why this method is usually not appropriate for trauma, especially in the beginning. It can be appropriate for building resources around the trauma, but it's not so good for working with the trauma itself, because oftentimes people are just, they're hijacked. They're, they're sucked into the black hole's gravitational field and they can't get out. If that happens to you, because we're going to do this in a moment here. If that happens to you, drop that old painful experience like a hot coal and go totally back to whatever's positive. Okay? So that's the theory behind this. You want to try it? Yeah. This, this, this is like one of my all-time favorite methods. So the way I would do it, okay? When I finally kind of figured this stuff out in my 20s, I would, um, something good would happen. And often mild and small. That's another key point here. What we're working with is the law of little things. It was usually lots of little things that messed us up in the first place, right? It's going to be a lot of little things that are going to take us back the other direction. So these are little things. So let's say I was in a work situation and um, one of my coworkers said something like, yeah, well, you said that was good, right? So I would deliberately let myself feel it. And then I would sense that that experience, which I knew was objectively valid, it was legitimate. I wasn't doing positive thinking. It's a really important point. It was legit. That's why this works. I knew it was legit. I would let myself feel it, and then I would sense that it was just kind of going down into, you know, old, which is to say young, places of hunger that really wanted that when I was little, right? Or uh, sad or inadequate, low self-worth places that were getting fed finely and soothed, like a golden balm, you know, or something soothing, or a kind of resource finally going in to what that young part of me had always yearned for. Each time I did it was usually only half a minute or less. With a little practice, and I was on my own side, which is very important. You've got to be on your own side to do this. After a while, I realized that you know I could um, I could help myself a little bit. So I began looking for experiences like this, and with well-chosen friends, after they said something like, "Yeah, that was good, what you said," I might say, "Oh, what was good about it?" But see, here's an important distinction. Most of the time, when I did that, some of the time I admit it. When I did that, I was just pulling for the narcissistic supply, right? In therapist language, shoot me up with more acknowledgement. Feed me, Seymour, right? Mm, I wanted it right now. Okay, that's problematic. That's greed. That's craving. Okay? That, that's, that doesn't fill the hole in the heart. But most of the time, honestly, I was taking it in so I wouldn't be so hungry, so it would fill me over time. So I was, my happiness was less conditionally dependent on what was happening out there. And increasingly, through bhavana, through cultivation, through practice, I was nourishing, I was nurturing the conditions of an unconditional happiness inside me. You know, or more exactly, the conditions inside me that helped me become increasingly independent of an external dependence. 
on you know the vicissitudes of life, the winds, you know, the worldly winds blowing in a positive direction. Okay, so that's the general idea. So let's try it kind of briefly and quickly. All right, and then we'll move to a, a wrap this evening. Uh, first off, bring to mind a you know you could say a hole in your heart, and I recommend you pick something medium sized. <laughs> For me, it felt like the construction site for a skyscraper initially. It was a big, big hole. But a few times a day, I'd throw brick in, a brick into that hole. After a few weeks, I started feeling noticeably different, like the woman here said a little while ago. Months and years, now 30-some-odd years later, I feel really different in regard to this one. So for you, whatever size hole it is, medium size probably best. And then be clear in your mind what could be an antidote experience for it. For example, Feeling uncared about, well, antidote to that, feeling cared about. Feeling powerless, let's say, as a hole in the heart. A sense of some capacity to make something good happen. That would be an antidote. A way to understand the antidote experience, which is a very powerful idea, by the way, is to ask yourself, what would have made it right way back when? in terms of the normal range of what would, have, what would have scratched that edge, what would have fed you in a way that would have been healthy and positive. If you had a dear friend who was dealing with whatever it was you were dealing with way back when, what would you want to give your dear friend? Just naturally, you'd realize, of course, that's what my friend needs. So that's, those are different ways to identify an antidote. If you can't come up with a specific antidote, a good general purpose one is feeling cared about. Because in the human brain, feeling cared about is probably the primary way to calm down pain that has to do either with um, not feeling like one can achieve one's goals or feeling threatened. Okay. So, let's try this now. So for starters, start with the antidote experience. And we'll work through the first three steps of taking in the good. So bring to mind some facts that call up in you this particular antidote experience. and then really savor this experience. The second step. The third step, sense it's sinking in. Now sense that this antidote experience is prominent and strong and it's going down into, dimly sensed in the background, 
or even simply just intuited that this positive experience is making contact with and soothing, settling, and even gradually replacing old places of shortage or wounding. Maybe it's like a healing light or a golden balm. Continually reground in the positive antidote experience. Maybe sense that this positive experience is giving young layers in your psyche, maybe just younger by a year or two, or maybe a lot younger, giving those younger layers what they've always yearned for. periodically go back to just the antidote experience itself. And then explore yet again it going back into and sinking down into those old places of shortage or pain. Okay, and then come back to just the antidote experience alone. Sinking into it and feeling it sinking into you. Okay, come on back. So I'd like to hear from just a couple of people and then I'll wrap up um, this part. I know that uh, Pascal and uh, I think and so Muriel uh, will have a couple of announcements or things to say. And then I'll take about one minute to give us a formal end to the evening. And I'll stick around happily to talk, by the way.
you like. And I should have said this at the very start. A lot of the things that I've talked about here are available on my website with slide sets with lots of cool neurological information as well as other things and other resources as well, including links to lots of other neurodharma-type resources on the Internet. And BuddhasBrain.com will take you to my site. Okay. So a few comments. Yeah, please. The question was, am I talking here about forgiveness? Self-forgiveness. Or self-forgiveness or forgiveness of others? Um, not specifically. And I think forgiveness, and people use that word differently. You know, one way to use it is not that you're letting the other person off the moral hook, but you're releasing being upset about it. You're moving on. That's one way of defining forgiveness. Another, you could say higher bar, is that you've release them from the moral um, uh, fault, you know, frame. That would be an example of, you know, coming to peace with something through this fourth step. Very often, though, I think people use it for things that are not related to forgiveness. Like for me, I didn't have issues around resentment. I just got it. It was because I was young and a dork and very shy. You know, that's why there was the glass wall. It wasn't their fault. You know, but there was still uh, some significant shortages of healthy supplies that I went after as an adult with, a, you know, a will. So that was different. There was no forgiveness I present there. Yeah, yeah, one, yeah. But sure, it's a wonderful example. It's just not the entirety of this particular method. It, at a certain level, it's very simple. You're going after areas of shortage or wound. You know, we all know what they are, right? And um, they get reactivated often, and then they really affect us. And what we're really trying to do in a way that's absolutely grounded in facts and in good neurology, we're trying to um, you know, gradually rewire the brain from the inside out. OK, a couple more. Yeah, right there. Okay. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, I won't be able to recreate all that, but she was saying that as she did it, she had a very strong energy experience, like a rising energy coming up and then settling down with a, a heat in the body. And I think that's an example of the way that the, the whole body is connected with the mind and they, they go together. Uh, Many, I suspect other people may not have had such a dramatic experience, and it's okay to not, you know, to have had a profound experience but not a dramatic one. Or honestly, one brick at a time. It's a lot of little things, a lot of little moments, which for me, honestly, makes it more believable. It's not about million dollar breakthroughs. I mean, I'm all for the million dollar breakthrough, right? I'm an American, of course I'm for the million dollar breakthrough, but anyway. But it's the little brick after brick after brick. Okay. So I better move to a wrap.
myself. I will happily stick around. If you come tomorrow, we'll spend a lot more time on um, other things. We're going to talk about the loving brain tomorrow, which I think is really, really neat. And I know some people from True North are going to come up and talk right now. And then stick around, please, stick around. And then I will finish this up with about one and a half to two minutes of a practice at the very, very end. So I want to say thank you for the moment, and I'll say a bigger thank you in another moment. Okay, great. So, all right, thanks. Is that Muriel? Great. Bonjour, mon nom est Jawi. Je travaille en fait pour la Labo Boreal. Merci beaucoup, Eric Hansen. Mais moi, en fait, je voulais juste vous mentionner qu'on est un organisme évidemment sans but lucratif, donc on dépend évidemment des dons des gens comme vous. Donc, si cette soirée vous a intéressé, si vous êtes intéressé à continuer à, à faire de la méditation, à, à bénéficier des, des bienfaits de la méditation, euh, à participer en fait à nos retraites, euh, ben on vous invite euh, à nous aider aussi financièrement. Et à cet effet, on a des cartes euh, à l'extérieur avec nos brochures où est-ce que vous pouvez justement euh, avoir des informations sur le sujet. Et aussi de mentionner que pour nous, les dons mensuels, euh, je suis assez direct, là, mais euh, c'est quelque chose qui est très important pour nous pour pouvoir soutenir l'organisation. Euh, je vais inviter aussi David euh, à commenter là-dessus en anglais. Merci. Rick, thanks so, so much. Oh. It was a beautiful and inspiring talk. And I know I got a lot of it, and I could tell from all of your comments and insights and questions that you were really fully engaged here tonight. And for the Friday night people, if you have a taste for this and you have room, time to come tomorrow, there are still tickets available. So if you wish to pur purchase a Saturday ticket, downstairs there will be people um, you know, ready to sign you up for tomorrow. Okay, plenty of, plenty of space. So um, I wanted to thank you, Rick and to let you know that Rick will be at the back signing copies of his book, What is Bring? So I um, wanted to thank the Word Bookstore as well for uh, making uh, books and tapes available. So thank you to the Word Bookstore. And thank you to all our volunteers that uh, graciously worked hours and hours putting this event together. So um, I would just like to thank and name our volunteers. So just give me a moment, I've got the whole list here. So thank you to Jane Zale and Roxanne Duo, Muriel Jawish, Sibylla Rolf, hope I'm saying that right, Joan Robichaud and Etzak Karnif, Odette Smith who did the translation, that'll be tomorrow, there'll be PowerPoint slides. Ann Carter who helped with the catering, and Jim Ryle, who worked so beautifully on the marketing and the posters. Kent Conover and Cecilia Malinsky, I may have missed a few other people. My apologies if I have. And a special thanks to Patricia Dobkin. Thank you, Patricia, for putting this whole thing together. I also want to thank the board and the OC for um, supporting True North and helping our organization grow over the years, and we have a few board members here tonight, Daryl Ross at the back, and um, 
Pascal Leclerc, who was up here earlier, and Dave Leggett. Dave, where are you? Great, thanks Dave. Dave from Toronto, our new board member, and uh, members of our OC, including Daryl Ross, who I just mentioned, Janet Maxwell. Janet, where are you? Over there, Janet. And Muriel Jawish, who was just up here a moment ago. Thanks, Muriel. So just to um, <coughs> just say that uh, before we close tonight, I would make, I'd like to make an appeal to all of you to consider joining us in sustaining and building True North Insight. So if you would like to benefit from having more opportunities like this to come out here and hear world-class speakers uh, like Rick Hansen, then that's what it takes. It takes that much to build and sustain an organization. And if you would like to have opportunities to go on retreat, and we have multiple opportunities, whether it's day-longs or um, residential retreats and non-residential retreats in all the major cities across Eastern Canada, then that's what it takes to grow an organization. So, it takes work, and it takes building a strong community. And so, what I'm asking for you tonight is to either consider giving the gift of your time or giving the gift of your financial resources to help us grow and to sustain True North Insight. Now, there's a couple of ways to do this. You can either make monthly donations, and to be honest with you, that's the best way for us to grow because it's through the predictable monthly checks in the mail that allow us to plan events like this and to grow our schedule for 2011 and 2012. So at the back in, um, over there, there'll be um, a True North volunteer who uh, can help you fill out one of these forms that will allow you to, to tick off a uh, monthly donation or if you wish to make a one-time donation. If you would like to be part of, have our um, monthly newsletter, and it's, it's an e-newsletter and it's perfectly free, um, you can fill out the back of your ticket and just put in your email address and you will be included in our mailing list. Also, you can pick up our um, retreat schedule, which lists the retreats or the remaining retreats for 2010. So don't forget to pick up one of these. So in closing, I'd like to say that for me, going on retreat is such a valuable, it's such a valuable thing to be able to take a day or three days or if I can afford seven days to just take in the silence, <coughs> take in the peace. And when I do that, I come back and I feel like I have just so much more to give to my family. And I feel so much more connected to this earth and to all of you. And that's what we're doing here at True North. We're giving people those opportunities. So I invite you to join us in building and growing and supporting our community. So thank you. And thank you again to Patrick Hansen and um, Patricia. You want to do it? Yeah. Okay. Do you want me to pick? I want to pick. You want to pick. Okay. Yeah. Take it off. Okay.
Okay, what okay. I'm going to do is there's going to be one lucky person who gets one of her Tansy's books. It's like shamelessly manipulative, isn't it? <laughs> but it's great. You know, you know you're being worked. Okay, so the winner is uh, Pierre Mondeau. Pierre? Okay. All right, yay, Pierre. Okay. 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 Well, thank you, David. Thank you, Patricia. Patricia was a special friend for me in this process as well. So I'd like to take just two more minutes or so to wrap up kind of officially. Um, by the way, I forgot to mention this. Uh, if you have any interest in getting the Wise Brain Bulletin, which the Wellspring Institute sends out monthly, or this weekly newsletter I do called Just One Thing, which is very, very short about a practice, um, we always keep your email address private and you can always unsubscribe. I don't like spam at all, so I'm very respectful of people's uh, email addresses. Um, I think the thing to do is just contact me through True North. Tomorrow I'll be smart and I'll put out a little yellow pad for an email list. I was dumb tonight. It's a little distracted by Montreal, but um, uh, so that's how to do it. Okay, so let's bring it to a formal close. If you could, one last time, taking in the good, two minutes or less. So if you could, bring to mind the experience of being for yourself. In other words, not against others, but for yourself. Kind of a stand of your own life matters. And there's a wishing well to yourself. Maybe with a recognition that as you become happier yourself, you're more able to create benefit for others. So it's all right to have more and more happiness and well-being. So the, the focus here is on the experience of wishing yourself well. Feeling that sinking in, knowing what this experience is like of being on your own side. And as well, being aware of a confidence, of a knowing that your own gradual efforts on your own behalf will gradually bear fruit and gradually change your own brain. With the knowing, for example, that your efforts to weave positive experiences into the fabric of your brain and yourself will work for you. benefits rippling out and a felt sense of knowing these benefits rippling out to benefit all beings known and unknown great and small human and not human 
omitting none. And may it be so. Okay, come on back. Thank you again from my heart. Thank you. Thank you. I'll take it in. Feels good. All right. Be well. Be really well. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.